0: Our scripture today is from John 4, verses 1 through 18. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Adrian Rogers once said, The door to the room of opportunity swings on the hinges of opposition. The door to the room of opportunity swings on the hinges of opposition. This passage that Courtney has read for us is quite familiar to those of you who regularly attend church or maybe grew up in Sunday school, but for others of you, it may not be so familiar, but there is a problem at times with familiar text, and the problem is that we, uh, we lose sight of some of the intricacies in these texts. And in this story, Jesus encounters a woman, and he has to break through three barriers in order to simply have a conversation with her. There is the gender barrier. Jesus is a rabbi, a teacher of the law. He is uh, not supposed to be speaking to a woman. As a man, even carrying on a conversation like this, but especially as a rabbi. So he breaks through the gender barrier to speak to her. Secondly, there is the racial barrier. She was a Samaritan. 722 BC was when Assyria came storming into Israel and carried out the best and the brightest of the Israelites. They left then the leftovers, if you will. Then they populated northern Israel with Assyrians. Those Assyrians uh, developed relationships with those Israelites who were left there. This group of people became known as the Samaritans. They were considered uh, in uh, every derogatory way possible in Jesus' day as a half-breed. They weren't fully Israelites. They weren't fully Assyrians. They weren't even the best of the Israelites to produce offspring. And so there was a racial barrier. Third, there was a religious barrier. She looks at him and says, are you greater than our father Jacob? She worshipped differently than Jesus, as a Jew, worshipped. As a matter of fact, the uh, Samaritans only subscribed to the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't read past that. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they considered to be important for, uh, for worship, and nothing beyond it, there was a religious barrier. Jesus had to break through all three of these barriers just to carry on a conversation with this woman, and he cared enough about her to do that. What do we learn when we look at how Jesus breaks through these barriers? Three simple uh, principles, perhaps you may call them. Number one is that Jesus satisfies thirsty people. Jesus satisfies thirsty people, Uh, he asks for a drink of water, she said, how do you, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, he answers her and says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, when we see the phrase "live in water, uh, she perhaps thought a running stream rather than a deep well. Maybe Jesus is saying he could have given a running stream of water rather than a deep well, but Jesus was referring to most likely Jeremiah. This woman never would have read Jeremiah. He was past uh, the uh, first five books of the Old Testament. She never would have gone there. But in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 through 13, uh, Jeremiah writes, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, comma, The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God referred to himself as a fountain of living water. Jesus, quoting Jeremiah 2 here, says, If you would ask me, I could give you a fountain of living water. She responds very logically, and her response is this. You have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep and indeed it was. The wells in those days would be at least 100 feet deep and she says you have nothing to draw water with and he answers everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I must say to you that I have heard this uh, passage preached. I have uh, read it many, many times, but it wasn't until preparing for this sermon that I got this. The thought has been, when Jesus says you will never be thirsty again, uh, that it means that she will never thirst again. You say, well, Jerry, isn't that the same thing? Let me describe it this way. I like to eat. I really enjoy eating. Like, I don't do it because it's a necessity that I have to do to survive. I do it because food is really good. Amen? It is, right? I like to eat. And in my house, that is rewarded really well. Wendy can cook, uh, GoGo can cook, Libby can cook. It's always good. If there's food at my house, it's good, and I enjoy eating it. And so, over the past couple years, I've lost some weight, much needed. But I would say to you, if somebody came up to me and said, Jerry, I'm going to give you a meal. And once you eat this meal, you will never be hungry again. You'll never have to worry about gaining weight again. I wouldn't touch it. Why? Because I like to eat. I couldn't imagine, especially coming up on the holidays and seeing all of this food and not wanting To enjoy it, not desiring it, not being hungry. I I enjoy eating. My son and I love to go to Wasabi's in Asheville and eat uh, sushi. We love sushi. He and I both do. And we'll sit there. We always sit at the bar because they toss you some of that seaweed salad. It's so good. And so we'll sit there. We love to do that. I enjoy eating. Jesus doesn't come to this woman and say, I'll give you one drink, and once you take that drink, you'll never want another drink. That isn't what he says. He doesn't say, I'm going to make it to where that you're not thirsty ever again for a drink of water. What he says to this woman is, I will produce in you a spring of water that will well up in such a way that you will constantly drink of it. You will be thirsty, but your thirst will always be satisfied. Always. I'm not going to take away your desires, he is saying. I'm not going to take away this joy, this zeal, this desire that you have to live. And some people view Christianity that way, right? Once you come to God, once you come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, you become a prude and you no longer laugh, you no longer have desires, you no longer enjoy anything. That's not what Jesus is saying to this woman. He's saying to her, I will satisfy your thirst. And it brings up the reality that we try to satisfy that thirst with so many other things. Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2, bear this out. As the deer pants for streams of water. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So Jesus satisfies thirsty people. Secondly, Jesus exposes thirst-quenching counterfeits. He exposes thirst-quenching counterfeits. He says, go call your husband and come here. I love her answer, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, well, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one you have is not your husband, what you have said is true in a roundabout way she told the truth she said I'm not I'm not married Uh, no you're not Jesus says you've been married five times and now you're living with a guy without being married we now know why she came in the middle of the day Women never drew water. John is careful to say that this was the sixth hour. Uh, The hour began counting at 6 a.m. This is noon. She's at the well at noon in the hottest part of the day. Women never would have done that. Now we know why. Why did she come in the middle of the day? She was embarrassed. She was ashamed. She was the town harlot. Everyone in Sichar knew who she was. We also know now why she came alone. Women always came to the well with other women for their safety. And I've learned through the years, women just like to do stuff with other women. All right, you go to the bathroom together, you do these things with other women. It's just interesting to me. And she came alone because most likely no one else in Sikhar associated with her who'd want to be with her hang out with her and your reputation could be in serious trouble she was that kind of woman and so jesus called her out notice her answer though she is full of sin she is full of religion She points out the distinct difference between how the Samaritans worship and how the Jews down in Jerusalem worship. She says, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Every time in the book of John, Jesus says the hour is coming. He's referring to his death and resurrection every time. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He confronts her Samaritan religion that included none of the prophets, none of the historical books, none of the Psalms and Proverbs and all of that. And then he goes on, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is he saying? You're focused on two locations. You see... After the exile, the Jews were allowed to come back. The Israelites came back into Jerusalem, and Ezra and Nehemiah restored and rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah the walls, Ezra the temple. The Samaritans stayed in Samaria. They built their own temple around the same time, about 400 B.C. Their own Mount Gerizim was a temple that the Samaritans worshipped God in too. Uh, So there's worship in Jerusalem in the restored temple. There's worship in uh, Samaria on Mount Gerizim in the newly built temple. And the woman is saying, this is where you're supposed to worship. And if she were talking to any other Jew besides Jesus, it would have become a worship war. Immediately, the other Jew would have said, no, that is where you worship. David uh, uh, got that city. Solomon built that temple, and it's been rebuilt. That's where you worship, and an argument would have ensued. Jesus didn't go there. It's amazingly how such a religious woman was a blatant Sinner and her religion masked her sin. She'd had five husbands. Uh, number six is on the hook, and she wants to talk about temples and worship. That's what what's going on. And she says, I know the Messiah is coming, and he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. (laughs) I love that. She's talking to him. She's talking to the Messiah himself. Now, in her thinking, since her reading only went to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34, verse 10 was key to all Samaritans. It talked about Moses being the greatest prophet. That there had never been one that that had arisen in all of the nation like Moses and that God would do this. He would bring another prophet one day who would replace Moses. So they stopped at Deuteronomy. They expected a new prophet to come on the scene. The new prophet they called the Messiah. And that's what she's saying. I know Moses number two is on the way. And when he gets here, guess what? I'll ask him about it. That's what she's saying. What are the counterfeits that are at work? Let me talk about three or four of them. First one, obvious one, relationships. There is this thought, among many single people, if I could just get married, all my troubles will be over. And what do we say that to that married people? Ha, <laughs> not hardly. I love the phrase that says it's better to want something you don't have than to have something you don't want, all right? So take your time, singles. But there is this thought, there's this desire, this relationship will satisfy me. This person will feel this deepest longing that I have, and there's no human being capable of doing that. There's not one. He cannot be that for you. She cannot be that for you. She can't, he can't. The second obvious in the text is religion. Religion. Give me some system. Give me the yeses and the noes, the do's and the don'ts. Let me check it off a list, and if I can do that, God will look at me and be satisfied with me. And religion doesn't satisfy. Why? Here's why. You never know when you've done enough. Is he satisfied with this? Is it enough? You'll never know. Did you do enough? Did you, did you give enough? Did you serve enough? Did you attend enough services? Did you say sorry enough to make a religious God who set these demands satisfied? with you. Religion won't do it. Relationships won't do it. There are others, not really mentioned here, but worth mentioning now. Success. Success in what you own, success in your place in life, your position in life, what others think of you, your reputation, all of it wrapped up in there, if I can be Good enough in my career. If I can be uh, reach this level, then I'll be satisfied. If you're younger, it would be um, be grades. Would be academic success. In ministry, noses. How many people are here? How much money is given? Those things that tend to define us. They quench your thirst for just a little bit. For just a short period of time, and then you're thirsty again. Uh, What is, we know this, what is the number one way to quench your thirst? Drink what? Water. All right, somebody said Coke in the early service, really loud. And I must admit that I love those little glass bottles of Coke, that's my favorite, right? Super cold, Uh, pop the top on them, they're so good. And on more than one occasion, I have been convinced that would work. But it doesn't. Tastes good. It doesn't quench my thirst. Water works. Jesus exposes thirst. Quenching counterfeits. Jesus' disciples return. I love it. Uh, it says, uh, John wrote this, by the way, about himself. Uh, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? or Why are you talking with her? So the disciples come back. They've gone to get lunch. They come back and they go, Whoa, he's talking with a woman but they didn't ask him why. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She goes and preaches a super short sermon. All right, one of the worst I've ever seen. She'd failed preaching class for this. What is her sermon? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Do you know what the people are thinking back in, in, in Sikar? They're thinking, well, we know everything you ever did. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. You've had five husbands. We know you're shacked up with somebody else. Uh, you don't even hang out with us. We know who you are. Uh, so big deal about a man who knows everything you've ever done. And then she ends the sermon with a tentative question. Can this be the Christ? What is she asking? Deuteronomy 34, 10. Moses, has the second Moses come on the scene? Is this the one? Is this the long-anticipated, the long-awaited Messiah? And I love the next phrase. They went out of the town, and they were coming to him. It worked. The little, pathetic attempt worked. Why? Here's why. Changed lives always speak loudly. Always. The number one witness you can have to a lost friend is your own transformed life, it's your number one witness. It's the best thing you have going for you. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't, have to be, you don't have to have figured it out. If you want your kids to walk with God, walk with God in front of them. If, if you want your uh, uh, mom, your dad, your brother, your sister to know Christ, let them see Christ in you. Change lives. Always communicate loudly. Hers did. You see, we're coming up on the Christmas season. Next week, I'll begin our Christmas series. It's called Home Alone. That's my favorite Christmas movie of all time. We watch it every year. I love it. We can quote different parts of it. It's great. And in every sermon, we'll have a clip, all right? So, everyone. Now is the best time to invite somebody to church if they're going to come they'll come now if they're going to listen to you talk about Jesus the next five weeks or it that's why I'm preaching this sermon this morning because there's somebody in your mind who's unreachable you think there's no way after the early service this woman walked up to me and she said this morning for the first time I realized I didn't have to write down the name of my aunt. For 35 years, I prayed for her. This week, at the age of 64, she gave her life to Christ. Isn't that awesome? At the age of 64... And she said, this woman said to me, standing right there, how tempted I was on more than one occasion to give up. I was tempted on more than one occasion to think she's never going to come to Christ. She's never going to turn her life over to Jesus and there's someone in your life, there's someone in your circle of influence, and you think there's no hope, he will never come to God, she will never come to God, he will never turn away from his sin, she will never turn away from her sin, and the disciples come back, and they look, and they wonder, why in the world Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman? She's a hopeless cause, there's a religious barrier, there's a racial barrier, there's a gender barrier, she should never be engaged in a conversation with a rabbi who does she think she is what does he think he's doing what in the world is going on here and we get our third principle from that jesus surprises devoted disciples they marveled that he was talking with the woman and then they said rabbi eat and jesus said i have food to eat that you don't know about and they look at each other and said, well did somebody bring him lunch i mean what happened We went into town, went to Chick-fil-A, the most godly fast food place you can go to. He doesn't even want it. Who would turn down Chick-fil-A, right? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Don't miss this. Please get it. We always read this and think, whoa, that Samaritan woman... Went away from there realizing that kind of water wouldn't satisfy, but Jesus could give her water that would. And that is true for every lost person in this room and for every lost person in your sphere of influence. That is true. But for all of you who know Christ, what is Jesus saying? I can give you something to eat that's better than food. What is it? Do my will. You might just get carried away and skip a meal or two serving God. You might get so caught up in serving him that these earthly appetites, like we just sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will do what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Wow. Wow. And then Jesus said, "Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest." The town harlot, the town prostitute, went back into town, preached a one-liner sermon. And some commentators say that Jesus reference to the, wheel, the 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 fields being white for harvest most likely refers to these robed people. They just wore kind of bleached out, mostly white robes in Jesus' day. And Jesus said to the disciples, you're so concerned about lunch. Look, look coming out of the hills. Do you see them? Do you see this, this half-breed unwanted Samaritans. The fields are white for harvest. And the disciples didn't even notice. They were concerned about lunch, and Jesus was concerned about the loss. They went looking for food. Jesus went looking for followers. They saw the Samaritan woman as a liability, and Jesus saw her as a possibility. I love that. Who do you see as a liability? And Jesus sees is as a possibility. Perhaps you've turned on the TV on a Sunday morning to see Don Wilton, pastor of First Baptist Spartanburg. First Baptist Spartanburg, you may not know, is Billy Graham's church. His membership is there. Dr. Wilton has been there about 14, 15, maybe 16 years. As a college student, I went to school in Spartanburg. I remember attending First Baptist, and when I walked in, I thought, ah, certainly don't belong in this place. It, very well-to-do congregation, and you could tell by looking around. I remember the only Sunday I was there, Dr. Walker, Alistair Walker, was the pastor. He, too, has a, kind of a Scottish brogue. He was the pastor, and I remember him saying, When it came time, they did a traditional invitation to do the invitation. I remember Dr. Walker saying that morning, um, I would appreciate during the invitation if you would stay while people are responding. As soon as he extended that invitation, the music began. Probably 125 people walked out. They, they were more concerned about lunch than the lost. I've never forgotten that. Didn't go back, found an, another church, honestly, that I thought for a super poor college kid, I might be welcome, honestly. So Dr. Wilton, Dr. Walker retires. Dr. Wilton comes as their next pastor, having taught preaching at New Orleans Seminary. Brilliant guy. He comes in and hasn't been there long when he decides to go down the street. There's a diner everybody knows about, and everybody knows the owner of this diner is anything but a Christian. And Dr. Wilton has some lunch, meets the owner of the diner, and lo and behold, leads him to Christ. And it caused no small stir in Spartanburg when that notorious unbeliever came to Christ. Dr. Wilton didn't stop there. He began to look around First Baptist Spartanburg only to discover that most people who lived around First Baptist Spartanburg were African American. It's right in the center of the city. They didn't have a church, didn't have a chance. And so he began sports ministries to reach all those little kids and bring them onto that campus and and had buildings built to bring those kids in and as he began to do that the establishment at First Baptist Spartanburg said no and 600 of them left Dr. Wilton talks about the discouragement he felt as one by one they departed because they wouldn't have their church run over by those people. He said, I, I thought I won't be there long, and one day I was devastated, and a deacon walked in, and he said, get your head up. God is working. Uh, First, Spartanburg reaches hundreds of kids every year all around that place. I've had the privilege of touring their facilities. They're phenomenal. Whoever would think of building such remarkable facilities for kids who can't pay a dime to use them. Jesus surprised these devoted disciples, didn't he? What comes out of it? I'm guessing, because I hadn't before I prepared this sermon, that you've ever noticed verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So... When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, I don't know why this is included, but I think it's hilarious. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. What are they saying? We're done with you. We heard it from the horse's mouth, you know. We heard what you said, but we heard the guy ourselves. I mean, he told us, and it's not just you anymore. We've heard from Jesus ourselves, And this is what they say, and we know that this is indeed the who? Savior of who? Let's say that together. The who? Savior. Savior of the world. Wow. What is important about that? The disciples didn't get that at Jesus' death. They were convinced he was still only going to save the who? The Jews. The Samaritans said, We now know he is the Savior of the world. Why? Here's why. If they would save, if he would save us, they're saying, he will save who, church? Anybody. If he'll save us, he'd save anybody. Religious barrier? Gender barrier? Racial barrier? I love the fact that this morning... In our 930 service, we now, this morning, had almost 15 people listening to the sermon in Spanish as someone interpreted it in the back. Aren't you glad they're here, church? Amen. So glad they're here. Savior of the world. Let me ask you a question. Who... Have you given up on? Who do you think God just can't save him? For some of you, it's your dad. You think dad is never going to get this? A husband, wife, a wayward son or daughter? Here's how we're gonna end today. If you brought something to write notes on, write their name down and then say, okay, God, this Christmas, I will not give up. Invite them to worship. Pray for them. Maybe they'll come to the candlelight service Uh, if they won't come to a Sunday morning service. We'll have invite cards here in the next couple weeks, and once we get those, we'll give them to you and just take them to him. He is the Savior of the world, amen?